0: As we've said previously, Paul's letter to the Galatians is his effort to distinguish the gospel that he preached from the distorted message that the Galatians were hearing from rival teachers. Paul, after planting churches in the region of Galatia, moved on to other regions, and in Paul's place emerged teachers who were insisting that in order to become righteous before God, you had to follow the Mosaic law. And for the men, that meant you had to be circumcised. If you were a Gentile and you wanted to become a Christian, uh, Christianity, uh, of course, has Jewish origins. We have a Jewish Savior in Jesus Christ. All of the apostles were Jewish. So because you have this Jewish faith... There are those who are insisting that there is so much continuity with the Old Testament that all the Gentiles who wanted in needed to follow those principles and be circumcised. and So circumcision became the focus point. It became a theological symbol that rival teachers used to measure whether or not you would go all in with the Mosaic law. Now, having previously insisted, when Paul said that we are justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, Paul was making plain that circumcision was not a prerequisite for getting into heaven. Following the Mosaic law was not a prerequisite for getting into heaven. And now Paul, in chapter 5, details the dangers to subscribing to this contrary view. He begins in verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now those of you who worship here Sunday by Sunday must appreciate how that always happens right about now. Sirens every Sunday. The image of freedom that Paul uses is a common image throughout this letter. Before being set free, Paul says we were held captive by the law. The law was our guardian or... As Paul says elsewhere, we're imprisoned by the law, so the law becomes our prison guard. But now, Paul declares, Christ has set us free. Our legal status before God changes when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. But here's the issue. We apparently have the capacity to live as slaves... Even while we are free. So this is a key point for us here. Because it's one thing to have our legal status changed. It's quite another thing to actually live in light of that new status. And apparently what Paul's witnessing in the Galatians is they're now free, but they're living like they're still slaves. And that's why Paul follows this wonderful declaration about freedom with an exhortation to stand firm. And an exhortation to not submit to a yoke of slavery. I find Paul's words here to be curious. Do not submit to a yoke of slavery. I wonder... If by using the word yoke, if Paul is aiming to bring to the mind of his readers the words that Jesus spoke, you know them. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke... Is easy and my burden is light. This fits Paul's pattern of setting out for his readers two opposing options, two polar positions to choose from. Which will it be, the yoke of the law or the yoke of Christ? The yoke, as many of you know, is an instrument of labor. A yoke is used to join animals together, usually two, but not always. A yoke joins animals together. And there's a few different benefits to yoking animals together, but my understanding is one of the primary benefits comes in the act of pulling something. And I'm told that two oxen yoked together can pull more than double their individual capacity. So so you have one ox that can pull 500 pounds, I don't know how much they pull, And, and the other oxen pulls 500 pounds, but together maybe they can pull 1500. The idea of what they can do together is greater than what they can do individually. Now, Jesus says, my yoke is easy. What does he mean by that? I think what Jesus is saying when he says, my yoke is easy, is he's suggesting that he's going to do most of the work. Jesus is saying, if you're connected to me, I'm going to do most of the pulling here. So it doesn't matter how much you can pull. If you're connected to me, we're going to pull a lot. The law, the yoke of the law, on the other hand, does none of the work. The law does not want to do any of the pulling, any of the towing. The law does not want to lift a finger for you. So the law, the yoke of the law, is not a help. It's a burden. It's a weight. You're pulling more than if you were on your own. So Paul is challenging the Galatians, and he's challenging all of you sitting here today to make a choice between these two. Will you be yoked to the law, or will you be yoked to Christ? And Paul says we cannot be yoked to the law as a means of justification, and at the same time be yoked to Christ. You can't have them both. Paul says in verse 2 and following, If you accept circumcision as a means to salvation, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, Paul says. You who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Paul then goes on to teach, goes after those who would teach that circumcision is mandatory. And those who would teach that the Mosaic law must be followed every uh, letter and detail of it in order to be saved. Now I don't know if you caught it in the scripture reading, but verse 12 in this chapter is rated PG-13. It's not something you expect to find in the Bible. It's not a kind thing that Paul says. And I'm glad that most of the children uh, won't, and, and the ones that remain won't understand what I'm saying, which is good. Because Paul says in verse 12, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. And Paul, actually, in the Greek, it's a play on words. It's a play on, on the act of cutting in circumcision. That Paul's saying that those would cut to circumcise. He's saying, I wish they would just cut the whole way. It's PG-13. It's, it's harsh. I don't know if you've read Galatians 5.12 before. Or if you haven't heard it in a while, you're probably sitting there saying, "Whoa! I didn't know Paul was like this. That is quite a bit harsh. I would have never put it the way Paul did. I think the apostle needs to settle down a little bit. Well, John Stott sees Paul's statement very differently. In his commentary on Galatians, Stott writes Paul's response sounds to our ears both coarse and malicious. We may be quite sure, however, that it was due neither to an intemperate spirit nor to a thirst for revenge, but to his deep love for the people of God and the gospel of God. I venture to say, this is still thought, that if we were as concerned for God's church and God's word as Paul was we too would wish that false teachers might cease from the land. Friends, if you've lived in the Bahamas any length of time, you know that this country is not exempt from having false teachers in Christian pulpits. And if, if we wonder how we should feel about it, we read Galatians. Galatians. Paul does not shrug his shoulders and say, well, that's just the way they do things. That's just what they believe. Paul is deeply concerned that every Christian manifestation get the gospel right. Paul's statement is harsh. But it's also very much in step with how Jesus spoke about those who would harm others With with their influence. Do you remember Matthew 18 when Jesus gave this warning to his disciples? Because it's just as harsh, if not harsher. Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. That's not a pretty image. Is that up on the screen? It is. Have a look at that. That's an awful image. Tie a millstone around your neck and jump in the sea. Jesus says that's a better idea than causing a young Christian to stumble. It's a better option than causing one of these little ones to To fall away. What we see both from this statement from Jesus and the statement from Paul, false teaching is a very serious matter. And we cannot shrug our shoulders at those who would distort the gospel. Those who distort the gospel make themselves vulnerable to the worst kind of divine judgment. Well, what was the error in this instance? In this instance, the false teachers were adding requirements to getting into heaven. Adding requirements to gain salvation. Adding requirements to the gospel of Christ. But as Tim Keller puts it, you can't add to Christ without subtracting Christ altogether. Christ is either all their value, or he is without value. Christ is either all our value, in Christ alone, cornerstone. Either he's everything, or he's nothing. Now, recognizing that the law cannot save us, some of you might be sitting here thinking, well, what do we do with the law? You know, are some of the parts of the law fulfilled in Christ? Are some of the ceremonial, timely aspects of the law, have they been replaced by some later act? And the answer is yes. And I preached an entire sermon about this two weeks ago. So I simply say, go to standrewskirk.com, click on the sermons, and you will find out how the law, how the Old Testament law applies to you today. You don't want me to preach two sermons. I'm certain of it. So go, if you haven't heard that one, read it for your, or listen to it for yourself. So I want to move on here and talk again about Paul declaring that we've been set free. But he doesn't simply say you're set free and leave it at that. He begins to explain what we have been set free to do. What we've been set free to do. You see, freedom, as Paul understands it, does not mean you're free to do whatever you please. Because Christ has redeemed you, you're not free to behave any way you wish. You're not free to do as you please. Christ sets us free so that we can do that which we were meant to do. We were designed, we were created, we were redeemed to do certain things. Christ has set us free so that we have the new capacity to do these things. Look at verse 13. Paul says, you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But use your freedom through love, serve one another. Again, you could paraphrase that and say, don't use your freedom as an opportunity to do whatever you want. But use your freedom to lovingly serve other people in a manner that you could not or would not before Christ saved you. As we see here, we haven't simply been freed from something, We haven't been simply saved from God's wrath, but we've been saved for something. Christ has set us free that we would love God and love our neighbor. Christ has set you free to help you love him and to help you to love your neighbor. Now, I'd like to offer an analogy And I'm always a bit concerned when I give an analogy because sometimes they really help and they make the the theological point memorable. Sometimes they just throw us all off course. And I, I hope it's the former and not the latter. But the analogy I want to offer you this morning is to equate loving God and serving others. I want to equate that with swimming really fast in a swimming pool. Stay with me on this. So your capacity to love God and love your neighbor is equated in this analogy to swimming really fast in a swimming pool. Now, why do I come up with this? Because I'm told you don't like hockey analogies. So I move over to swimming. And my daughter is a a competitive swimmer. And I want to tell you about one of the training tools that they do to, to help her become a better swimmer. There is a bucket system. Which competitive swimmers use, whereby you fill a bucket or a pail full of water, and it's attached to a pulley. And the pulley goes up and around a bar and down and connects to a belt on the swimmer. And the idea is the swimmer gets going and the bucket of water goes in the air. Now, obviously, the the heavier the bucket, the harder it is to swim. And it's a fascinating exercise to watch. You've got all these really fast competitive swimmers, and they're barely moving. They're just swimming ever so slowly because they're attached to this very heavy bucket. As you can imagine, you don't swim fast when you're connected to the bucket system. But the bucket system is a training tool. Similarly, I want to suggest to you that when you try to pull God's law by your own strength, it will not elevate your love for God and your love for your neighbor. If you're trying to tow along God's law by your own strength, you're not going to love God more and you're not going to love your neighbor more. God's law is a training tool. Now you would expect when the swimmer is set free from the bucket system, when the belt is untied, when the swimmer is free, they swim much faster when not tied to the bucket. Well, I hear Paul saying when we release the weight of God's law from around us, He does so not so that we can get out of the pool, but he releases the weight of the law so that we can swim faster, so that we can move faster. The weight of the law gets removed and now we can love God and love our neighbor in a way that we previously could not. But to track with the biblical imagery... I need to add another layer to this swimming analogy. The biblical imagery is that we are released from the yoke of the law, but we put on the yoke of Christ. So you see, we exchange one kind of training tool for another, So the true story, often what follows, swimmers using the pulley system, once they release the belt that's connected to the pulley system, the coach often then tells them to put on fins. And if you're a competitive swimmer and you put on fins, you really motor. Swimming becomes easier. And not only is it easier to swim with fins, but you're faster as you go through the waters in the pool. And see, this analogy helps me, and I hope it helps you, appreciate the difference between towing the law of God by our own effort and having grace-assisted service to God and to my neighbor. Progress will be slow and difficult if you're trying to obey God by your own strength. By contrast, loving God and loving my neighbor becomes easy, becomes satisfying when assisted by the fins of divine grace. The difference is so striking, it's so stark, the contrast, you can begin to appreciate why Paul can't understand what the Galatians have done. They've taken off their fins and they've hooked up to the pulley system. And Paul's thinking, what are you doing? Isn't it obvious to you how much better it is to be connected to divine grace? How should you apply this? Because there likely aren't many here today who are tempted in the same way the Galatians were. If you're not from Jewish origin, you're probably not tempted to all the ceremonial details of the law. If if your best friend is not a Seventh-day Adventist, you're probably not tempted to take on all the ceremonial and dietary aspects of the law. But I suspect... There are many people sitting here today who are not swimming as fast as you might possibly swim. I wonder how often your devotion to God, and I wonder how often your devotion to your neighbor, is fueled by your self generated efforts. You're working hard. You're exerting yourself. I don't doubt that. If you're Presbyterian, you're working hard. That's what we do. You're trying hard to be a good person, a kind person. You're sincerely working to love God more and to love your neighbor more. But your progress isn't what you would like because you're doing it by your own strength. And you're not yoking yourself to Christ. You're not connecting to divine assistance. Did you know there's a really easy test for this? If you're sitting here trying to evaluate yourself, real easy test to figure out whether you're working by your own efforts or by divinely assisted grace. Real simple test. Does worshiping God... Serving God, loving your neighbor, serving your neighbor, does that wipe you out? Does that exhaust you? Because if it does, it might indicate that you're relying on your own energy. You're relying on whatever nutrients you've been able to get into your body. You're relying on natural resources to do the job. But if you can worship God, serve God, love your neighbor, serve your neighbor, and if that energizes you, that probably indicates that you're getting help. You're being assisted. That you've got fins on of divine grace. The Bible doesn't say we're free from training tools when Christ redeems us. The Bible says we give up one kind of yoke, and we connect to another kind of yoke. And the yoke of Christ is what kind of yoke? It's an easy yoke. And it makes our burdens light. This happens because He does most of the work. And if he doesn't do the work, you will. And if you do the work, you'll be exhausted. If he does the work, you'll be energized and you'll stay connected and you won't disconnect from Christ. I can't say this enough to a group of Presbyterians Christianity is not a do it yourself endeavor, it's not a do it yourself endeavor. What is required is supplied. And so we ask for help. We put on the yoke of Christ. We let Him do the work. We depend on the Spirit's power. I'm sure there are many preachers this morning who are standing up in front of congregations like this and they're saying something like, Love God, love your neighbor. I'm saying a little bit more than that. Because if you love God and love your neighbor by your own strength, you're still missing it. We devote ourselves to God. We devote ourselves to one another using all of the training tools and resources available to us. So yes, Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself, but don't do it by your own effort. Put on the fins of divine assistance. Pray for the Spirit's help. Pray that the yoke of Christ would pull the weight. In Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen.